I am unashamed. What about you? All right, so we're back. Jace, I'm still on the road. I see you've made it back home. Oh, I've been home travels. for two or three days, Al. Now, I've been a bachelor. You, I've been living you, the bachelor you life. bachelor? Yeah, I figured. But you know I what? You Every were. once in a while, that's not a bad way to go. And then my wife came home last night, and you know what they say? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. So, <laughs> hey, wow. God designed who, who it. Who is that? And I am enjoying wow. the process. <laughs> Feeling pretty good today. We went teal hunting. Yeah, well, you're at your 50s. Once you hit going like me, going toward 80, it'll just be a little pat on the head and say hi. That sounds fun. That's depressing. I'm trying to stay positive and represent the quality godly marriages out there that are vibrant. You get a little older. Things change. Yeah, no, that is true. That is true. So, so Zach's with us today. Hey, Zach, coming in from North Carolina, and uh, I'm coming from the great state of Texas. I love Texas. Texans, one thing about Texans, they love their state. I mean, they're proud of it. Yeah. Which kind of makes you proud to visit, you know. I've often said if they ever, you know, because in their constitution, things get bad enough, like federally, that they they say in their constitution, we can just become our own nation. Because at one time they were, you know, they were the nation of Texas before they kind of joined the union. So I'm like, if, I tell Texans all the time, if you ever do that, like if we get bad enough, because you never know, take Louisiana with you. We'll we'll come on board. We'll be Texiana, and we'll bring the food and the merriment. You know, we're good for that. And then, you know, we'll just kind of become our own nation. So if that ever happens, I, I'm on board. So all you Texans out there. We have plenty of weaponry, God and guns. Yep. We got God and guns. We cling to them, which is as hateful, the former president which is hateful, said. Hateful to some, but to us, it's, what, it's a way of life. Y'all see our, our, the audience can see our ducks. That was your idea, Phil. You thought that was a fantastical story today. I thought it yeah. needed to be because we were sitting on one duck, and you see one, two, three, four, five ducks. There's a story. How did you go from one to five? Old Jace. The ducks oh, lit geez. wide on us about 200 yards, and they're, they're just sitting there. I said, we can't get them to come up there around the decoys. We tried all morning. We called at them, and they, they were just, you could see them, and they were literally just perched up, standing on dry ground, saying, we're not coming over there. Jace has a particular skill set whereby he can creep through a thicket and get up on waterfowl, deer, or whatever, he can do it better than anybody I've seen. So we turned him loose, and he disappeared in the brush. And he said, I'm going to try him at about 80 yards with his full choke gun I have. And we waited for to hear the gunfire. Everything was quiet. The ducks were still sitting there. And it took him about 15 or 20 minutes to get set. And then the gunfire started erupting, and the results are on the end of that table. It was a creep. <laughs> It was a creep, slowly, slowly. I got four out of five. I'm getting a little old. Four out of five. I thought I was going to get five, but I thought it was. Those ducks came from the Canadian prairies, and and they were doing fine until they ran up on OJ's. Now, (laughs) in the pot they go. Well, after, after after the last podcast, Beth, who we just hired, um, she moved from Dallas, who's the one of our producers. Uh, she called me and said, I, I hope I haven't offended your uncle. And I'm like, oh, no, what happened? She said, well, after the show, he hands me the ducks and says, here, you take these home with you. And she was like, I didn't... <laughs> I don't know what to do. <laughs> what do I do with this? She, so I, I know she declined the offer, Phil, but I'm here to, to make sure that you're not offended by her decline of the offer. She really had no clue what to do with, with uh, uh, a lanyard full of, or a, a, a thing full of ducks there. She, yeah. she didn't know what to do with well, it. Well, I was so. thinking she <laughs> might I was providing her supper, wild ducks. I, yeah. was, I thought she'd jump all over it. She was like, Phil, well, this really? may be hard for you to believe that some people in our culture, they don't. They've never eaten a duck. I guess that's boy. They don't know you, what they're missing. 
Well, that's true. Well, it's not. The, I don't think. The, I mean, the bigger issue is is the the ducks weren't picked or well, anything. Right. So you're just handing yeah. her the entire bird. Well, she's like, she just had no clue what to do. I mean, that's it like, would pretty much I mean, be the what? same way if you if you handed somebody a chicken, you know, just right out of the yard and said, "Here you go, yeah. enjoy this supper." Most people wouldn't know what to do. I mean, we would because we've cleaned you know game our whole lives, but most people. They don't know that. They think it comes like it is in the grocery store. That's the, that's how God made it, you know. Just oh, I know. I told my wife. I said, "Look, you got to realize if this like something like a zombie apocalypse or whatever these end of the world scenarios happen, I said you realize <laughs> everybody within a thirty mile radius of where we're at, they're coming here because we can survive." Right. So what's the song? Tell you what boy I had head? something. Saturday in the hunting world that has never happened to me before. I mean, I've been here a pretty good while. Never. So Saturday, we get in the blind like we have most days for a week. And, uh, and you know, because it's dangerous this time of year. I mean, when Phil told the story about me creeping, usually I would say no when it's September and it's 90 degrees. But I'd already felt like I had a second lease on life this morning because when we walked to the blind this morning, because we're having to shuttle people in because we only have one amphibious rig and we can't haul everybody. So me and old Godwin, we walked about, how far did we walk? Quarter of a mile. We walked a quarter mile through the mud. But Godwin stepped on a snake this morning. But I was the second Ooh. man because he, you know, we had a, we had a little bit of an argument about who was going to be walking first, and he didn't. Yeah, that's the hired hands. Well, he didn't. He didn't want to. I think the second. Like man, I told Dan many times, get out there and get up on that duck line. Yeah. You know, we're going to put the brush on you. He said, "Well, I see a cottonmouth up in there. You send them young ones because they're expendable." Well, but me and you agree that I would. I would rather be the second man, but Gawain thinks the second man is more in danger because he thinks the lead man would just spook him and the second man get bit. So I said, "Okay, I'll take that." But I was thinking just the opposite. So he stepped on yeah. a snake. But he didn't know he stepped on the snake because I'm behind him. But this thing just rolled up around my legs because I was right behind him. But I knew it wasn't a cottonmouth. Oh. But still, because it it was the size of you know think python, but fish snake. Uh, it was a fish snake. Looks terrible. <laughs> they look rough. You know, it's as big no, around yeah. as your arm rolling around my boot. You know, with his mouth <laughs> open. You're thinking you're fixed to die. The trained but, eye would have said, "Well, harmless." But anyway, so the reason I, I'm telling you that is because then I thought, well, after I lived through that, why not go try the creeping? But Saturday when I got in the blind, you know, you're looking because the opening day we had the wasp nest and different things, critters, you know, of various forms. And so I looked down as soon as I get in the blind and this blind is built up. So you feel for some reason safer than you should. I mean, it's probably what, three or four feet off the water. Yep. And I see something move. Now, it's dark, but I have a light. I saw something move by my boot. And I shined down, and it was a very large bullfrog sitting in the blind, facing where the hunters are. He was just sitting there. Of course, I was thinking, how did he get in here? Because we were just there <laughs> the day before. He wasn't in there. So then I went into frog-catching mode. <laughs> so I eased, got my hand up, kept the light, and caught him. Phil saw it. Then we had to figure out, you know, I put him in my pocket at first, but about five minutes into that, I was like, this, this is not going to work. But uh, <laughs> it was just, the rest was gravy after that. We actually had a pretty good hunt. But I'm like, I'm, I'm taking this frog home, and I'm going to eat this frog. And Phil and Gawain said the same thing. They're like, boy, if you had seven or eight of them. You know, you'd have some, but I said, but I got one. And so what I did feel was I cooked, I cooked that frog and I savored every last morsel. <laughs> it was amazing. Top off a teal hunt with a bullfrog. What else would you want out of life? I cooked some, some, uh, some home style French fries with it. I had some green beans yeah. and I just had that one frog there. 
And I just started because I, I cooked the whole frog. Did you saute him on butter, a little butter? No, I chicken fried him. But he was so tender. It just was incredible. It's not every day you get a bullfrog for breakfast, supper. Yeah. Oh, it was. In your breakfast. It was awesome. So we we had seven teal and one bullfrog. So I have a picture I'll show all the fans for the people who want to see it. Let's go. I had have to you, then you've never you, You've never caught a bullfrog in a duck blind before, right? That's got to nope, be a first. I've caught an alligator in a duck blind. Yeah. We've killed many snakes in there. We had a buzzard that tried to live buzzard. in the blind. Remember that? We That, had that finally ended by burning the blind because a buzzard, <laughs> you can remove the buzzard, but you never remove where he's been. It's rough. Oh. <laughs> Did they smell bad? Did the buzzard well, they smell, smell bad? The, blind, oh. the, whole, the whole premise, it stunk. Yeah, oh, it, wow. it just smelled like the something, worst something thing. Dead. Like dead, like dead carcass. Oh, we tried to hunt there. So you're basically yeah. you would shoot, gag, shoot, <laughs> talk, gag. Some would vomit. Yeah, I brought out just, the uh, what, uh, some kind of Tex uh, Clorox, Clorox, Clorox. Kill the microbes. It's rough, but it still stunk. Oh yeah. You can't, I've never seen <laughs> stink that can't be taken care of. It just, Eradicated. There's nothing you could do. Yeah, it just, it eventually, no matter what you poured on it, it just, it came back. You couldn't get rid of it. Yeah, it's so hard to for, burn it. You had to burn, burn it, it in the burned it. Yeah, it was quite the It's hard for people tale. around the country, especially up north, to understand what it's like to try to, you know, hunt waterfowl in the when it's still hot it's just like you described oh, Jace. there's so many well, we factors had a guest working this against morning. you we had a guest yeah. from minnesota this morning and, he, and we let him shoot his first duck we had one duck come in and he and he shot it it took four to five minutes but he finally pulled the trigger and i said well you got one duck and two decoys yeah. you know i'd have waited <laughs> or moved the angle a little bit but <laughs> So then when this bunch lit wide that I was going to go stilk, he said, do you want me to go after him? And I was like, no, we want you to survive because <laughs> I thought you don't realize this real estate here. We sent a man from Minnesota to walk 200 yards in that thicket. There's a pretty good chance you'll never see him again. <laughs> well, since he uh, since he survived, we're we're gonna have he he's uh, he's with Jep today, and so we're gonna have them on the podcast to tell a little bit about what they're doing. So we're gonna take a break. Oh, and he's come gonna back be on, on the, the podcast. Side. Yeah, we're gonna have him on the podcast, so we get to hear what he thinks about it. Oh, so, I knew that. I was you, I was acting like I didn't know. I thought I would do a good lead in for him because I want to hear an explanation why he didn't think of our decoys when he pulled the trigger. I love it. All right, let's take a break. So I know we have a lot of uh, probably more male listeners on our podcast than female. Uh, And one of the things that we can all relate to, uh, the Bible talks about Jesus talked a lot about the lust of the eyes, which is common uh, to most men. Unfortunately, uh, in our culture, pornography has been a scourge. And um, a lot of people have suffered. A lot of families have suffered because of it. And so we've got some uh, some good friends at a, at a group called Covenant Eyes, and they've helped over a million and a half people uh, discover a porn-free life. And so they've been doing this for about 22 years. Uh, I heard about them years ago through Promise Keepers, and so uh, I've used them myself uh, on my devices. They're, they're fantastic. There's accountability there, which is really good. A lot of people don't like to talk about this, but the Bible talks about it quite a bit. So if you're uh, is this is a struggle for you, you really need to check these guys out to get some help. Uh, go to CovEyes, C-O-V-E-Y-E-S dot com, and you're going to be able to try their Covenant Eyes free for 30 days. So they're going to give you a free 30-day trial. Use the promo code Phil uh, to get some help. So it's CovEyes dot com slash Phil uh, and get this pornography out of your life. All right, so we're welcoming to the podcast. Yep, I'm not real sure why you're here, but I'm sure you'll let me know. And we have thanks for that welcome. We have our man from Minnesota, 
Yeah, we got to get your real name because now you have become known in the whispers of the uh, the duck lair as the decoy killer. Yes, well, <laughs> Kevin from Minnesota originally, now from Chicago, where oh. we don't get a whole lot of ducks flying over. But yeah, yeah it was delightful this morning. Yeah, you can maybe you can introduce this concept to Chicago because I heard there's a lot of guns there, so maybe they could get into hunting ducks. Which that would be would, way better than people. It, it would be. Yeah. yeah. So are, you, are we going to go ahead and... Jace, that's the first time I've ever heard a duck hunt described as delightful. I love it, Kevin. You, you yeah. are raising the bar <laughs> of Unashamed Nation. Thank you for that. I appreciate hey, it. Hey, Kevin is 100%. One shot, one kill. I was impressed. There yeah. you go. Oh, it was impressive. Now, it took a while. So what were you it, thinking during, what was the, how, how come it took so well, long? What he said was, he said, I got three, you know, and I said, no, two of those were decoys. Oh. <laughs> it, it's hard to tell. You all have those fancy decoys that move yeah. in the water and yeah. create all this. So to sort out which ones are real, which ones are, are fake, it's, it's tough for a newbie like me. Look, and he you just put the old kill them all. <laughs> he asked before and he said, what if I shoot a decoy? I'm like, ah, oh, it's fine. And he, he did it. It's so, called in the duck world a ground swat. <laughs> ground swat. Shooting the duck so Dad, on how the much, water. How much, are, how, much are, uh, how much are decoys these days, Dad? Do you know? What, what did, well, what did now, our here's man what happened. He, he uh, Minnesota, Kevin from Minnesota, walked in and saw me giving Phil some money for some diesel, which Phil was like, where's where, where's the rest of it? I was like, that's all I had. Then <laughs> I took him through that story about the widow lady giving all she had on her. But, uh, <laughs> so. I, I noticed, I, I noticed you, you said uh, what was on her. So you got yeah. more, right? Oh, I said, yeah, there's plenty. But I'm saying... <laughs> In that moment, I gave you all I had on me, which I thought would have caused gratefulness, not <laughs> stain. But anyway, so uh, See, we burned a thousand gallons of diesel here we go. at five dollars a gallon. That's five thousand. And somebody says, "Here, let me help you out here." Four hundred. Not He's enough. There. <laughs> Stock market's down this week, I guess. Yeah, it's down. It's been down for about 10 Maybe months. Steps. Yeah, I know it. But you always take the 400 with gladness. So, which then led to a discussion of uh, what, how did Phil say that? Because he said, no, when you shoot two decoys with one duck, what would you say? It cost he, us. Yeah, Phil said, it cost it, us. It cost us. <laughs> A little bit of glue on the, you find the holes that the bird shot makes a hole in their head or a little bit below water level, they'll start sinking, they turn over. So, but yeah. you can take a little glue and we can patch them up, you know. But I've seen many decoys shot in my duck hunting years. Well, you saw two this morning. Saw two this morning. Yep. How you, is this getting awkward for you? <laughs> it's all right. I'm, I'm happy to be the fall guy, but... Uh, Maybe the tenth or twelfth time I want to shoot a bunch of these real ducks, but yeah. But now you yeah. pull. Look, I will say this: most people, when they shoot a duck for the first time, they miss. That's right. And that did not happen in your case, mm. so that is something to be proud we were of. Dead on. Yeah, dead on. We just usually yep. wait, and nobody gave you instruction for them to swim past the decoys, and then you can shoot. Because he uh, he okay. had no chance of leaving. Because if he had jumped up, we'd have shot. It's over. We were giving you some the duck hunters won't shoot them sitting on the water. They, they they spook them and they get up, shoot them flying. They think it's not sportsmanlike. But Phil came up with a good point that I believe in, and he concluded that a duck tastes the same whether it was shot flying or sitting. Hmm. There's no difference. Well, we'll find out. Yeah. This would have been a real helpful <laughs> conversation to have this morning before <laughs> I knew all this. Well, welcome to our family. Kevin, we say Kevin that is day. finding out in the in the Robertson family, Kevin. You've heard the story about the people just throw people out of the boat, the kid, you know, and said, This is the way you learn how to swim. That's basically what they we do for everything. So whether it's hunting or whatever, you you learn you learn on the fly. Kevin, so we're Jeff, giving you you're, we're giving you a hard time. But my first duck hunt, nobody explained anything to me. They had me a board. I jumped up on the board 
They said, shoot him. And I saw there was one flying in. Now, they didn't let it sit on the water. Uh-huh. But when I looked up, I said, well, there's a thousand just sitting here. Of course, they were all decoys. <laughs> so I just started shooting everything. He and was they young. Said, well, I was young, was like but there was no old. explanation mm-hmm. at all. So that's, you know, we're kind of giving you a hard time, but we all have to go through it. So go ahead, Al. Jace, Tell I us remember, what we're doing. Jace, I remember when you were, you were the, I remember, I don't know if it's the first time you ever shot, but I remember we were up there in that Moss Lake blind, and you shot a 12-gauge, and you were little. I mean, you, you were probably like five mm-hmm. or six years old, and it kicked you so hard, you fell back over the bench. Do you remember that? I oh, mean, yeah. like, you literally I, I went. At the it was sky. like yeah, <laughs> it was like something from a movie. Like it, it, you know, it kicked him so hard he just went back into the back of the blind. I'll no, never I remember that. I was staring yeah. up at the sky and Phil said, "What happened?" And I said, "Did I get him?" Because once <laughs> I pulled the trigger, that was the last thing I, I saw. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that from a lot. So, so Jeff. Um, so, other than the hunt, uh, welcome Kevin. By the way, to Unashamed Nation. Thank you. But uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Kevin and how you guys met and what and what you guys do, because y'all work together for All Guys Children. Yes. So uh, we actually met on a plane to Bogota, Colombia. And I, I hadn't met him, but I'd heard they hired him, and he's kind of my boss. And then I'm on the plane, and he comes walking up, and he's like, hey, Jeff, how's it going? And when I saw Kevin, I immediately thought, oh, crap, he's some kind of ta- tax guy. Did I pay my taxes? Like, I thought he was a – he looks like a tax collector to me. But then he was like, no. If I'm on a, if I'm on a plane headed to Bogota, that's what Columbia, I'm, I'm not th- – That's when the tax guys get you. Drug dealer, or I wouldn't be thinking tax collector. I, I assume tax collector. I was like, oh, shoot, or some kind of – Was he wearing like something? a black suit? What was it? What, what, no, what, he was just really nice-looking, you know, just way nicer-looking than me. And he knew my name, and I was like, "Oh crap!" We Jeff, ran into Jeff, something. You just described you just described like forty people on the plane. Of course, <laughs> you know, they look nice. Do you nicer think you're you. having tax issues? No, I like just was scared. He scared your me. Soul coming out in front of a public I pay, audience. I pay my taxes. Yeah. I just thought maybe this time I didn't. I don't know. Like, so, yeah. but, but now we're you do realize all morning. You, we're not looking like you, you do realize that it, that you're famous and people know your name. Like, there's a lot of no, people that know your. Name, I you, get it, but he that. was like extra friendly, like we're friends, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, how do we, what what happened here?" But then I found out I was like, "Oh, man. you're with all guys chilling. What's up, buddy?" Somebody <laughs> hollers my name out that I don't know every day. No, he didn't holler. My, he they walked say, up. Like, I just I don't make eye contact. I just put my hand in there. I got it. I got it. It was different, but yes, we met. So what exactly is All God's Children, if you had to explain it? We... Just out of the country or in the country, or is it both? Both. Um, but they were an um, adoption agency for 30 years. Then we started getting into orphan care about six years ago. And so that's where I, we were going to Columbia for, for orphan care. So I mean, what y'all, what I'm doing in my real life right now, y'all are doing as a global... Mission, yeah. right? Yeah, so is there a lot of aborting children going on where y'all are, and and you don't even you can't help them because they take their own they take their life. Is there a lot of that, or the, these are, at least the women are having the children, but evidently they're finding some who's going to take care of them. Right. Yeah, you know, back in the day, we did have a lot of orphanages. They were called Hannah's Hope at that time. But we found out it's a lot more complicated situation today. And so we've transitioned to be a more holistic orphan care ministry. Uh, not so much direct service, but more trying to prevent children from ending up in orphanages. And then also helping to care for those who are transitioning out. And mm-hmm. uh, and hel- also helping to change the policies of so government. You, you, you line up. I guess primarily women, maybe mothers or that have children, but you line them up. You're, you're, what are you saying? These children need, need a mother and father. Basically. Is that what y'all, you know, the, the orphan situation in the world is really, it's at a crisis point. I mean, there are numbers are hard to come by, but, as many as 20 million children around the world who have lost both mother and father. What we think is 
as many as 8 million of those are living in institutions. And so Ooh. that is a big number. I mean, think yeah. about that. That's probably uh, one and a half times the, the whole population of the state of Louisiana. Mm-hmm. That is a lot of children. And so the, the country that uh, we've focused on, we've, we're in 12 different countries around the world, but uh, more recently we've had some fantastic headway in Ethiopia, where there are over 600,000 children who are not in orphanages necessarily, but just living on the streets. So that's... Well, I've been there. It's it's crazy. Man. So how, how, how young are we talking? How young are these kids living on the street? I mean, little bitty kids. I mean, like you can see year olds come up and just grab onto your legs and I mean... And how are they making it? They're not. I bet a bunch of them don't. They yeah. don't. Yeah. Exactly. Hang on. Hang on. Let's take a break. So it, you were saying that, Kevin. It's and we don't realize it in America because nobody talks about this. And and Dad makes a good point. You know, the rest of the world doesn't abort children like America does. Unfortunately, we're the leader. Uh, in the world or have been hopefully that'll change now and so you just these you have these children and yet nobody there to take care of them so tell us a little bit about what you guys try to do like in ethiopia and and some of the places that you're working in what do you what, what are you doing to help these kids well in ethiopia it's a challenge because they actually don't allow international adoptions Uh, We work mostly in countries that do, and so we can connect them with families who want to adopt them. But about five years ago, they they made laws against any kind of international adoptions. So many adoption agencies left the country, but all God's children decided to stay. And so we figured out what can we do to resolve this issue, this problem with so many children without parents— even though we can't adopt them out of the country. And so we've taken a couple different approaches. One is that we're trying to train the caregivers. Uh, Who do you think is one of the first ones to encounter kids who are living on the street? Mm. It's usually the police. And so we've instituted trauma-informed care for the police. We recently had a training where police from all 11 districts in the capital city of Addis Ababa came together. They heard this training. Uh, They were so thrilled with it that we have another training coming up next month with over 300 police, government officials, other nonprofit organizations, all to learn about how do you engage with these children who have been so traumatized. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's tough work. Well, it takes me back to... Dad, it makes me think about James 1. You know, it says religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And so, I mean, you think about it, I, I don't know that there's a, a better calling to try to do that, especially to engage where you can't normally You'd go in. and uh, We immediately think adoption, but what if that's not an option? So what you guys are doing, yeah. uh, Jeff and Kevin, really is, I mean, pure and faultless religion, according to James. What kind of government does Ethiopia have? Is it a socialist government or a pseudo-socialist, communist? I'm not real sure. Dictatorship? I mean, I think it's kind of corrupt. I mean, <laughs> in a lot of ways, I mean, you know. And yet we've had opportunities to build relationships with government officials. In fact, the, the Minister of, uh, of Women's and Children's Affairs uh, has been in communication with us because they've seen what we've done these past five years, even though they don't allow international adoptions. And so we've we've adopted, we've opened up a home called the House of Hope. So we team we team with uh, Tim Tebow on that one. Yeah, it's awesome. How many girls are in that house? There's 18 girls. 18 girls. Yeah. And we try to reunify them with like, because a lot of them, you know, they were in a bad. Their parents were awful, or their mom, whatever, abused them. And so we try to reunify them with like a grandparent, an aunt and uncle. Yep. You know, to get them off the street and in a good home. I got you. Mm. That's tough work there. In Ethiopia, the prime minister is the head of government. Executive power is exercised by the government. I don't know. I was seeing if they vote. Do they have elections? They probably yeah, If they've got a prime minister, then they've got elections. Yeah, by direct election. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like a system it, probably like Great Britain. 
Yeah, we found a good amount of cooperation and not only with the police, but with government officials. And so we hope, God willing, at some point they might work out the system where we can adopt children internationally again and help to provide homes for those kids. But until that time, we are there uh, not only providing training, but the other thing we're trying to do is identify those kids who are most vulnerable to being orphaned. We don't want them adding to those 600,000 kids living on the street mm. in Ethiopia. So, But it's like the with our daughter that we acquired from Nicaragua, you know, she had already grown up and some of the members of the church had fostered her without, not officially, but just, you know, tried to help her and mm-hmm. looked out for her. And, uh, but when she got to America, I mean, she had educated herself and gotten a scholarship to go to college here, which is amazing. And, uh, I was just like, well, we would like to have you in our family we would like you to be our daughter Mm. (laughs) and she was like okay but so i'm saying even in these places where you can't necessarily you know officially adopt like her we didn't officially adopt her but i mean at this stage she's calling us mom and dad because we're probably five years into this now but uh you know when you help i'm just making the point when you help you're helping kids you're helping helping kids yep and uh you know, and Jeff, you know, Jace, what's so, what's so amazing about that is we just spent three days with her uh, in D.C. And so, like, we were speaking at this church. And so, I, you know, Lisa and I are like, you know, our niece Karina's here, and I'm introducing her to the crowd. Everybody's cheering. And, you know, she is our niece. And like you said, she's not mm-hmm. officially anything, but she's part of our family, which is amazing. I mean, it's, it, it really is just that if everybody uh, yeah. does something, you know. Well, it's beautiful because, you know, we we have something in common that we both were adopted by, you know, the Lord. And uh in the right. first conversation she brought that up. It was like, you know, we're we're all we all have a father in God. And I was like, Well you know, somebody had shared that with her at some point and that really resonated. But uh Jeff and I was talking the other day and I because it's you know, a lot of the people out in the world who are for abortion they, uh, you know, they detach this this fact that if a kid is born in tough conditions, that you're, it's almost like they're justifying it, saying, "Well, you're doing them a favor because they're not going to be successful, and they and they have no way to make it." And I'm looking at this girl who, you know, come from the slums in Nicaragua, no parents, and I'm like, "She did pretty good." <laughs> I mean, and so we believe, you know, that God creates all life and has a purpose. But Jeff and I were talking about, and uh, you remember what you told me? You told me that it was a great illustration. I've already used it twice because it's come up. You're welcome. I don't know where you got it, but (laughs) because we were talking about how people don't recognize that there's a baby, you know, the baby is a a human, a, a person inside you. It's like. They're justifying the taking of the life based on that. And Jeff said, I mean, it's kind of like when you put a cake in the oven, we, if you were to take it out before it's ready, it's still a cake. I mean, even <laughs> though it's not done. And I was like, you know, it's the most simple illustration I've ever heard. You would say, yeah, but it, it's not ready. It's not ready yet, but, but it's going to be. I mean, you know, it's just the logic that people swallow. But I thought that was a real simple illustration. But it's really true that 100% of humanity would say, if you take the ingredients and you put it in the oven and you wait, a cake's coming out of that oven 100% of the time. This is one of the things I love about getting to know the Robertson family is that each one of you have found some type of cause that you're passionate about since the the Duck Dynasty days, and you're invested in that, whether it's proclaiming the gospel, Phil, or taking in babies, Jace, or the pro-life cause, or caring for orphans, in Jeff's case. And each one of you finds ways to support each other in that, even if you're given illustrations to help. And so it's... Love God and love your neighbor are the two greatest commands in the Bible. That's what covers it. Yeah. But I think a lot of it is you just recognize, I mean, I believe God is the master at setting up 
encounters with people and circumstances. And so I believe, I mean, in my own way, I told you all about that bullfrog. Most of the time, it was the first time in my life that the bullfrog came to me. It was right where I sit. <laughs> was it down there on the other end? It was literally, I thought, well, thank you, Lord. I'm going to go home and eat this because evidently. <laughs> but I feel that way, like with, uh, you know, we got a call in the middle of the night. I mean, as in after midnight over Karina. I don't know if you ever heard that story, Al, but, but you know, hang when on, somebody calls on, we, me past. Hang, hang on, Jace. If we do it, let's take a break. When somebody calls me past midnight, it's either a wayward brother or sister who's drunk, or <laughs> it, it's something God has 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 sent our way. And you know, it was the story started like there's a civil war in Nicaragua. That was the first of the story. There's a girl with nothing stranded in Costa Rica. We she has a visa to get to the U.S. Well, you know, the, the, as, as far as this was going, you know, into all these details, it just felt like something big in my mind. I thought maybe the Lord is is sending this girl to us. And even then I was a little pessimistic about it, you know. But uh, when she got there a couple of days into it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is it. You see what I mean? It wasn't like we had an idea we're going to help, but it just recognized. Then we started looking for other opportunities. I mean, that's kind of the way it works. You're like, man, there's kids out here Mm -hmm. who are masterpieces made by God. And uh, like I said, she's helped us way more than we've helped her. I mean, she'd probably argue that. But just the grit and determination and to be grateful despite her circumstances of where she come from and not, not blaming anything or anybody. I mean, it's just incredible. It's very inspiring. But Jace, you know, you know how that continues to work. Cause uh, there's a lady in that's uh, it lives in uh, Virginia that used to work with Zach. Her name is Pam and she's an amazing Christian woman. I just, she's a connector of people like you've never seen. And uh, so she goes to this church that Lisa was speaking at. There's a thousand women there. And, of course, Karina came and was a part of it. And she had never visited this church. And she hadn't really found, you know, a church home since she's been up there because she just moved in. And so we introduced her to Pam. And uh, so they get to talking and they realize she lives very close to Karina. And she said, well, Karina, I would love to just pick you up and bring you to this church if you'd like to come with me and check it out. And Karina was so excited. And I just thought... You know, it was just another step in God putting us in a position to for her to meet somebody who can really look out for, her, you know, in a new place because she's new and you know she doesn't know anything and she's just trying to kind of figure out her way around. But but Zach and you can speak to Pam. I mean, w- what better person to have in your life as a mentor uh, spiritually, yeah. you know, to look out for you? Yeah, yeah. Pam's a great woman. Yeah, uh, I, it's interesting that just the whole idea of of um, what you guys are doing with you know all God's children. How, how many um, kids are in your care right now, or are that you're dealing with? We are not providing direct care to very many kids at this point. Mostly, we are developing partnerships with agencies within the countries, providing the training for them and helping them to to be facilitators of caring for these kids. Uh, In Ethiopia, we have a little different model in that we are sponsoring kids. We're trying to identify those children who are most vulnerable, most likely to end up out on the streets. Mm -hmm. And we have over 700 children there who are sponsored by other people here in the U.S., kids who are mostly out of They've lost one or more parents. They're coming from very poor subsistence level uh, environments. Uh, sometimes they're caregivers themselves. Maybe it's a grandparent or someone who's struggling through others, some other kind of disability, and they can't even go to school. And so, Jeff and I, we've both sponsored some kids. Yeah, and- I sponsor six. And when I went to Ethiopia, we went and we... They gathered all up. They came from towns from all over for us to give them the money. <clears throat> This dude, it's hard for me to tell this without like crying because it was oh it was, it was the craziest thing. I didn't notice it at first. It was it was a it was grandparents and this girl was so sweet. The grandma kept kissing my hand and she was like oh and she was she was telling me thank you in Ethiopian just kept saying it over and over and I and I was just like oh, thank you you know I, I was just kind of blown away. 
And I looked down at the grandpa's feet. His feet were backwards. Hmm. Like, I don't know if that makes sense. Like he could walk, but his feet pointed the wrong way. And I, hmm. and, and he also started grabbing my hand and I asked the Ethiopian guy, I was like, where did they come from? He was like, Oh, three miles away. That guy walked with those messed up feet, but they were so happy that their granddaughter had a chance and she was doing great in school and was doing amazing. And like her parents, I don't, she didn't have them. And, um, it was just, it blew me away that like how handicapped this guy was, but so thankful. And the grandma was so thankful. And I was like, man, we're, we're making a difference here. It was, yeah. it was incredible. Wow. Yeah. And the, these well, children, Oh, go ahead, Al. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, tell folks. There's a time delay. So this happens. Or, so <laughs> go ahead, go ahead Kevin. You go. <laughs> Kevin, I was going to get you to tell folks, uh, how they can uh, help if they want to assist you guys. <clears throat> well, the children who are available to be sponsored in Ethiopia right now, I looked on the website last night. Uh, we have 111 children who are waiting for sponsors. And uh, in fact, I went on the website with two of my granddaughters. I thought this is a great way for me to teach my grandkids about how to care for the world. And I said, hey, why don't each of you Look through these pictures, read a little bit about these kids, and, and each of you choose out one child that we should sponsor. So my six-year-old granddaughter, Peyton, she looked through and she wanted me to read about each of these profiles. And she chose the, the child who uh, was from a very impoverished area, uh, a six-year-old little girl. And um, she looked like she had uh, been through a, a really hard time, was not wearing very nice clothes, and her head was shaved. And she assumed, well, her parents probably can't even afford to, to buy shampoo. So I want to sponsor this little girl. Um, mm -hmm. My four-year-old granddaughter, she looked at a picture and she said, I want to sponsor this girl because I like her pretty red shirt. So whatever the reason, whatever the motivation, um, it's a way to show them that uh, there are other kids around the world who really depend. They cannot go to school unless they have sponsors like us. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, on the All God's Children website, we have those, those kids listed and Unashamed Nation can go there. It would be fantastic if many of those 111 kids were yeah. sponsored and could start going to school and start having regular meals and don't end up on the streets. Yeah. There you go. I love it. Well, thank you guys for what you do. And uh, it's, it's great. You, you said it perfectly, Kevin. You know, our family is, was dedicated to Christ and mission and ministry before the show ever came along. And this just gave us an opportunity to do even more of that, which is a great blessing. So it's great to meet you. Uh, I know when you come back, you'll bring some decoys um, with you. Uh, <laughs> and look, for, for, and I'll, note, I'll tell you this, you know where the world's largest bullfrogs are? Where? Ethiopia. They're really? there. No kidding. So look into well, that next time you're all there. <laughs> not, I almost went down there just to check it out. But now it's a good excuse if you could check it out for me while we're helping the kids now. Let's keep our priorities. But let's let's look into that. Jeff, next time we're there. Yep. Let's work I'll in tell a you this. Do there not you eat the lettuce. Let me tell you something. There's stomach bugs and there's Ethiopian stomach bugs. <laughs> don't eat lettuce. I will I don't thought I was gonna eat the die. lettuce. Yeah, I won't eat the lettuce. I think you can probably eat the frogs. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a break. Uh, thanks, guys. It's good to meet you, Kevin. Thank you. So we're back, and uh, it's always good to see Jeff and Co. And uh, I, I, I'm proud of the man that he's become and the work he's doing, which is pretty awesome. Jason, I want to pivot in. Um, we don't have uh, a bit left on the podcast, but I want to get into Mark because uh, we got some really, we kind of just cranked into the book. Um, but, Dad, you had some interesting insight about timing of, of Mark because Mark is, is recognized as the first gospel written, and Matthew and Luke took some of their um, wording from Mark. And so it's, it's typically well, known as the first thing that was written in terms of the New Testament or the gospel. How did they figure that out? I read the same thing. I don't, the, I'm not exactly sh sure, well, look, but it's pretty to what widely else accepted. I came across. I came across a few odd facts before Phil gives his, because I've already heard heard what Phil said. It was interesting, but they say that Mark is the most translated book 
in the history of the world. Now, just think about that. Really, we should have we should have led with that three podcasts ago. <laughs> now, here was the reason. Well, you just think we're going to study a book. It's called Mark. It's the most translated book into other languages in the history of the world. And here's why they think that's true. It's because, you know, Mark wasn't exactly writing to the Judaism audience. And they say the proof of that is that there were more Latin phrases in Mark than any other place. So they were, they were kind of given the uh, impression, you know, it was written to the Romans. And so when you, if you had to pick one gospel and it's the shortest gospel, so if you had to pick one to, to try to get into a country in a different language, they, they just pick Mark. So that's why they say it's the most translated, but I thought that was interesting. What do you think? Yeah, and, and that plus I was just going to to uh, get get everybody's mind. Your old statement is the Old Testament. Jesus is coming. Yep. When you get to Mark, finally it says, "Well, Jesus is here." The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that that time frame, the wait was 1,000 years. You go back to Daniel when he said the kingdom's going to come in the days of the fourth empire. You have uh, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, then the Romans, and here comes Jesus. Now, that's Daniel 7, or Daniel 2 and Daniel two. 7. But it was quite the wait if you're waiting on Jesus to get there. Well, 400 years. Yeah, 400 years. God didn't say a word. Which is why I think they didn't give Jesus any credit because I think the religious leaders thought God was done speaking. That is correct. I mean, to God, look, I'm to, not blaming them. To I mean, us, we say, good night. It took a thousand years from the time. In other words, after Daniel, God said, uh, I'm sending another Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Malachi's moving the goal post a little bit because here comes Elijah. I'm going to send Elijah. And everybody, what in the world is he talking about? Well, that was John the Baptist in Luke 2 that said, no, he's going to be like Elijah, powerful. And all he's going to say is, because Daniel's already predicted it, it'll come in the days of the Roman Empire, the kingdom. So here comes the kingdom of God. And it's going to begin with a guy named Mark. But it was quite, we look at it like, what in the world, waiting on something that's a thousand years off with God? It's nothing. But with well, that's us, why like, he said with, a day, uh, with God, a day is like a thousand years. Like a thousand years. True. So here, here comes Jesus and Mark's. Dan, another interesting thing you described when, when Daniel uh, got that vision, you know, Israel was in captivity uh, in Babylon. Yep. And so yep. literally, I mean, they didn't think they were ever going to be able to go back, and eventually they did. So you go back and you can read about it historically in Ezra and Nehemiah when they actually went back. So, yeah, it, it was amazing that when they heard this, when this was, you know, first talked about, it, Israel didn't even, it seemed to cease to exist much less, you know, somehow we were going to yeah. look at a Messiah, you know, a thousand years down the road. Which, by the way, Dad, since I, I mentioned Nehemiah, you know, our podcast audience is pretty savvy. So so one of our uh, listeners, we, you know, we, you asked, if, is there any pulp? The pulpit is not in the Bible. But, but oh, oh, contraire, one of our listeners, Nehemiah 8, 4, Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion and read the law. So there is a pulpit in the Bible. Thank you, whoever sent Nehemiah that in. Nehemiah 8-4, Phil. <laughs> or he had to stretch to find it. But he found it. <laughs> but he found he it. Found get, it. On a raised, get on a raised portion, or you can't <laughs> do any preaching. I just think you can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without getting on the platform. Well, I think your point uh, is still valid, Phil. Yeah, but every once in a while, valid. you find yourself where you might need 
to audibly get loud, so I don't find a problem with you going to a high point. How many pulpits did Jesus teach from while he was on the earth? Well, when he was in the synagogue here, because I did some research on that, because I told you a couple podcasts ago, because I went to ancient Capernaum, and one of the synagogues is still there. Now, it looks a little rough, and it's not, you know, if it rains, you're going to get wet. There was just a few pillars there. Yep. But when I did the research there, you know, and this is, I think you'll find this fascinating. He went there because during the, during the time, they would allow free speech. It was kind of like the social network of that day. You, you could get mm-hmm. up and, and speak uh-huh. no matter who you were. Which and you're so, proving my point. Yeah, about, so he just got about, up and spoke. Did he spend more time walking around out under the dusty roads and under the trees and out in the desert? Well, did he spend more time there teaching and preaching, or was it on the raised portion in the, in the, in the temple, the man-made temple? Where did he do I most think, of his work from? I think my answer would be he everywhere he went, he looked for opportunity. That's my point. But I'll also say this, since we're getting off the rails here, I think <laughs> you don't have to have a pulpit and to tell somebody that Jesus no, died right. for him, was buried and raised from. But the listen, dead. This, how did this, Jesus handle it? But listen to this thought. Well, we, he already seen him in the first two chapters. He went, he went in the city, he went to the synagogue, and he went in homes. Yep. Just in the first two chapters. There you go. So, but I'll, let me bring this up. He also, he got all these people lathered up because he was healing diseases. A lot of trouble coming from if he spoke at the the temple. Yeah, but then guess what he does? He then withdrew himself to a solitary place, which, by the way, was a common theme. But I I had a moment when I read that. I thought, you know what? Jesus did this a lot. And I thought about our own lives. We usually deem someone is doing good if they show up on Sundays. But actually, Jesus had more occasions where he went off by himself to talk with God as he did meeting at large gatherings. So I think that's yes, the importance. I think, yeah, I think we should, the sila, should make yeah. a point of that's that. My point. You should look in your life and say, you know what? Am I spending more time, you know, alone with God because you can't fake that. There's no if you're out. It shows your humility and it shows your sincerity, uh, and your faith is really being shown there. Because if you went out to a solitary place and spent two hours talking to God, why would you do that if you didn't believe He was there? Yeah, that'd yeah, that's be a, a good thin idea, line it, between being insane or a true believer. Yeah. Yep. Well, th- hang, on, Zach, hang on, Zach. Hang on, Zach. We're we're out of time. We're over. So uh, we want to pick this up and talk a little bit about uh, pick this up and talk a little bit more about it in the overtime. So we'll see you. We were TV. just getting started. No, we are getting started in overtime. See you there. Thanks for listening to the Unashamed Podcast. Help us out by rating us on iTunes, and don't miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube. And be sure to click that little bell to get notified about new episodes. And for even more content that you won't get anywhere else, subscribe to Blaze TV at blazetv.com slash unashamed.